When bad things happen, everything isn't bad. I'm Marian Shuck, the host of Let's Talk Hope, a podcast devoted to sharing the inspirational stories of organ and tissue donor recipients, organ donor families, and subject matter experts. That quote is from Jennifer Kramer Miller, a self-described incurable optimist. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to Let's Talk Hope. Hello, Marian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Well, I'm very thankful that you reached out to me about your book and wanting to be on the podcast. And I know that um, through your journey um, with four kidney transplants, we're going to have a lot to talk about today and it's going to be very exciting. So why don't you tell me just a little bit um, about yourself, a little bit about your journey? Of course. Well, first of all, I am a writer and an author. Like you said, I am a mom to a daughter who is now in her 20s and married. And um, for many years, I was in the custom home building business. So writing and a lot of nonprofit work is kind of my second career. And the reason I start with all of that information before I tell you that, yes, I've had four kidney transplants is I really want people to know that I am a person in addition to a patient. And I do frequently give talks to medical students. Um, and I tell them that exact thing that, you know, you have to see me first as a person. And I want you to see your patients as people first, because our our journeys with kidney disease and kidney transplants doesn't define us, but it certainly gives us a perspective on life. And I have gained a lot of perspective as you've mentioned, because of my four kidney transplants. But I can tell you when that all started. Long ago, I'm in my 50s now, it was when I was 22. I was suddenly felt puffy. I didn't feel right. I had just graduated college. I was living in Seattle. And I just couldn't quite figure out what was wrong. I went to a doctor, like you would expect, thinking that maybe I had a flu or a virus, something that would be medically familiar. But instead, I learned that I had protein in my urine. And I didn't know at the time that protein has no place in your urine. It meant that I had damage to my kidneys. And a biopsy was required, which I've since I've had many biopsies, kidney patients, kidney transplant patients have biopsies and we get a little bit used to it. But at 22, I thought that was the scariest word I'd ever heard. And got the biopsy, quickly learned I had an autoimmune incurable kidney disease. That is a very long name, focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, for short FSGS. And that diagnosis instantly made me feel like I'd been, you know, my life had been stolen from me. I was young and I thought I had everything ahead of me. And I just didn't know what was going to become of me from that point forward. But I loved your intro that not everything is bad, you know, it turns out to be bad. I've had a great life despite four kidney transplants. So we can talk more about that. But that's kind of where it all started. And let's talk a little bit about FSGS, because it is more common now than it used to be, right? It used to be the numbers were very low, but now I'm meeting so many people that have it. And to your point, they really feel like, oh my God, this is the worst thing that has happened to me. I don't know how I'm going to do this. There's not a lot of information out there. And that's one of the things that I liked about you reaching out to me is that you said that although 
There are 37 million Americans with chronic kidney disease. There are not a lot of books about it. And that really struck me because I read a lot, right? I read a lot of people's stories because they send them to me. But a lot of people reach out to me and I hadn't put two and two together until I I read that quote by you. Can you tell us just a little bit about the lack of knowledge for one FSGS, but just the lack of knowledge for chronic kidney disease? Yes, absolutely. I am, um, right now I am the board chair of the National Kidney Foundation serving Minnesota. So I'm very involved and I'm also a Donate Life ambassador. So I'm very involved in all of the issues. And and I'm a writer. And it did occur to me, I read a lot of memoirs. I love people's stories. I think we all are better off when we share stories. And it seemed to me one day that we hear a lot about breasts and brains and hearts, but kidneys, I think they need a better publicist. I mean, we don't hear enough about kidneys. And 37 million Americans, like you said, have chronic kidney disease. And so I really wanted to share my story and get my book published because People need to know there's one of the biggest things about kidney disease is prevention is a very big factor. And at the National Kidney Foundation, and you know, I, I talk to all my doctors and nephrologists and people I know in the kidney space, there are people who crash into dialysis, which means you suddenly realize you're at end-stage kidney failure and need to start dialysis, which is a life-saving artificial kidney machine. For I'm sure most people are familiar, but for those who aren't, it's the only way to survive after you have kidney failure other than a kidney transplant. So when people are crashing into dialysis, sometimes if we could have gone back and tracked their kidney numbers better people with diabetes and high blood pressure, those are the two main reasons for kidney failure. And so I think there's a big push for prevention on how to appreciate our kidney health and take care of them. And that was one of the other reasons I thought people need to talk about the kidneys more. We need to be aware of our kidney health. And as for FSGS, it is still, it is still rare in the world of kidney diseases But I think I read a statistic recently that 40,000 people in the U.S. have it. But like you, I'm hearing more and more people who, who have it. And it is a very stubborn autoimmune disease of the kidney. I just think that there's, it's ripe for awareness, kidney disease. And what is also so ripe for awareness, and you know this better than anyone, is organ donation and the power of people helping people. I mean, There's incredible stories of people saving people's lives through organ donation. And I just think that there's so many miracles that the stories are worth sharing. Absolutely. And let's talk about statistics for a minute. Um, As we talk about the national organ waiting list, we say that there are a little over 100,000 people waiting. We say that of that list, 90,000 people are waiting for kidneys. And of that 90,000 waiting, 63% are minorities. So you bring a totally different face to this. And I'm so glad that you're here today because let's talk about the statistics when we talk about the face of organ donation being so mirrored to multicultural communities because of lifestyle, because of habits and things of that nature. And here you are, a white woman 
who has an autoimmune disease. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because you bring such a, a great face to this that I really wanted to get your story out. Oh, thank you so much. I work with a lot of people on the board and there are, you know, Blacks and African Americans have a four times higher rate of kidney disease. I've worked with people in the Hmong community. They have a higher rate of, of gout and kidney diseases. And, you know, I said the first thing in my book that I'm a white woman and I don't have a socioeconomic status that interfered with my ability to get good health care. But we need to really push health equity and uh, kidneys for all. It hits everybody. It's not, it's kind of equal opportunity, but we're seeing these health disparities. I work with a woman right now at the board and she's a black woman and she is really working hard to educate her community about diet and kidney disease because we are seeing a lot of um, evidence that plant-based diet is helpful for kidney disease. And we're seeing, you know, the foods that she said she grew up in the South. She loves fried foods and had diabetes and realized that she had to really change her eating habits, which she has done. But we work together. Another woman, same thing as a Hmong woman. And by working together, all of us with, you know, different backgrounds, I think we do represent kidney disease in total because yeah it affects a lot of people and there's a lot of challenges in the in the space right now and talking about it I, I like how you say we just have to talk about it right and a lot of people don't want to talk about it a lot of people don't talk about it because you are not used to sharing our health histories we're not used to having trust and so to your point earlier about dialysis people crash into dialysis they crash into it and they wake up and they're on dialysis i have the the same thing with my brother right he you know, I, I tell this story. Our nephew plays in the NFL. It was his first game. We were all going to Miami. We all arrived. My brother didn't arrive. And we're like at the at the airport trying to pick him up. And I'm like, hey, where, where are you? Right. And so he doesn't respond to like 1030 at night. And he's in a hospital bed. And he's like, I had to go on dialysis. Now he is in Dallas by himself. The rest of us are in Miami for this game. And so I was very angry because my mother is older. So she's she's freaking out. And so he did this without anybody being there with him. And so there's a lot of challenges with people, one, not sharing and not taking care of their health. But more importantly, there's a lot of people that are going through this alone. And so tell us just a little bit about your village that helped you because four transplants is a lot. So did you have a different village every time or did you have the same village to support you through? And then tell us a little bit about what each of those were. Yes, I'll give you kind of the, the overview. So like I said, I was 22 when I was diagnosed. I lived in Seattle. I came home to Minneapolis where my family is. And my mom was just with me every step of the way in this process. You ask about my village, I have to start with my mom because she just made it a point to go with me to every appointment and to like make a good thing out of a not good thing. So I wrote in my book and a lot of people told me that they just loved this because my mom is, you know, such a 
an all-in mom, but she used to um, make every appointment sound like a social invitation. So I would say, mom, I have a two o'clock appointment tomorrow with nephrology and do you want to come with me? And she'd always say, I'd love to, what a riot. Like it was something really fun that we were going to be doing. And so she had this way of sort of alchemizing this experience into making moments that weren't that great, making them a lot better. So she's definitely number one in the village along with my dad. Um, And just my friends, you know, my friends were like, we were like, what's happening? So just the fact that everybody like kind of gathered around to support me has been huge. And, And those people have been with me the whole way. So first transplant was a deceased donor. And I was 25 when I got that kidney. I had been on dialysis for for a while before that. And I have to say that uh, donation is really, as you know, it's it, it rests at sort of the intersection of life and death, which was very confusing for me as a 25-year-old person. Um, and we're a very death-defying culture. We don't want to think about death. And it was really hard for me to reconcile the the grief and loss of some family um, with something that I gained. And in that time, I have learned through my work with Donate Life and Life Source that there's such a comfort for a grieving family, knowing that their person can kind of, their kindness lives on in somebody else. And, and they're not related. Like, it's important for recipients to remember you did nothing to cause the tragedy. Uh, You're just the recipient of someone's kindness and paying it forward. But so first one was deceased donor. Then um, while I had that kidney, I experienced more wonderful life and met a guy who became my boyfriend and then he became my husband. So he joined the village at that point and I needed another kidney little over five years later, because FSGS had recurred, and I got a second deceased donor kidney. And that kidney, I would love, I love telling people this, not only did it give me more time to make more memories and live more life, but I got pregnant and I was able to have a child. So it not only was a gift of life for me, it helped me create a life. And I always look at my daughter like what a miracle she is. She's this miraculous gift that I didn't know I would ever be able to have. And so that kidney lasted like it does, you know, not forever. The FSGS kind of does its thing. And eight years later, um, and then plus, I was on dialysis for about a year, I received a kidney from my mom. And that was another miracle, living donation from my mom. And the thing that was so cool about it is for my first transplant, she wasn't a match. And in that time difference uh, between 1990 and 2002, uh, they had changed the criteria for antigens matching. They used to match many more antigens than they did because they had discovered through medication advancements that you didn't need to match as many antigens. And so after all the things she had done for me, I thought she had done quite enough, but she really wanted to donate her kidney. And I was 37. She was 65 years at that time. So that was just another miracle. It's just a miracle. I mean, the village of my mom, like right from the beginning and then circling back to be able to donate her kidney was just so such a special experience. And she's doing great. Her 
creatinine is like the best creatinine ever. It's um, it's under one and she's very healthy. And so that was really amazing. And then um, my last kidney, which was just over 12 years ago, about 12 and a half, and that's the longest that I've ever had a kidney, was an indirect donation from my husband. So back to the power of the village, um, he really wanted to donate his kidney, but we weren't a match. And he got involved with the Paired Exchange Program. And so he indirectly donated his kidney to somebody else. And then an altruistic 25-year-old donor was a match for me. And I can't even tell you how steeped in gratitude I was by that point, because not only was my husband willing to have surgery, almost like he was just going to have an extra dental appointment, it didn't really phase him that much because he just wanted to help so much. And then a 25-year-old altruistic donor, it still blows me away every time I tell that story, every time I think about it, because he wasn't directing his kidney to anybody. It was just out of the kindness of his heart that he donated a kidney and and it came to me. So I've really seen the benevolence and the wonders of organ donation. It's just amazing. That is an incredible story and an incredible journey. When we talk about, you know, just the process of having four kidney uh, transplants, what do you say to people who are out there waiting? How do you want to be able to give them hope that this can happen to them? Or how do they advocate for themselves? Those are such good questions. One, regarding hope, actually a family reached out to me. There's a woman who needs a kidney transplant and they just want to talk to me about all the things that I know about it. And I just sent them an article that I I came across about a five-person chain, kidney chain. And it was started through the Paired Exchange Program. So when it comes to hope, I think that the Paired Exchange Program has become a game changer. I mean, it, it used to be that you had to find somebody who was willing to donate a kidney to you, and then you had to match. Now you just need to find somebody willing. And if they can get into the paired exchange program and that kind of cascade of events happens where their kidney goes to someone else, and then you can get someone else's, that really speeds up the process. So I think that's been an amazing innovation in the kidney space, and it's chock full of hope for people. People are getting kidneys. If we look farther ahead in terms of innovation in the future, I'm really hopeful about some of the companies that I know of, and one is right here in Minnesota, where they're bioengineering kidneys. In fact, they're using pig kidneys and creating that sort of a scaffolding with this kidney by washing out all the cells And their phase two approach, which will be, I don't know, five plus years from now, what they hope to achieve is taking like someone's cells, like your cells or my cells, and imparting them onto this scaffolding so that someone can receive a kidney and not need to take medications anymore. That is so hopeful and innovative, and I'm crossing my fingers every day for that to to happen. That will eliminate the waiting list. So it's so hopeful, right? Like these, so as for today, I like the paired exchange program. I like the the new medications that are helping people. And um, and I have a lot to look forward to. I think that we all do in the future, but advocating for yourself, you touched on that. And I think 
that is a really important thing for kidney patients to know. Like you are in charge of your health and you need to be your own advocate. And if you're sick and you're not feeling well, which is understandable, you need to recruit an advocate for you. And my mom was definitely my advocate when I was young and we were kind of sorting through everything together. We would take notes from all the doctors and uh, we had a joke where, you know, I, I would thank her so much for being my advocate. And somewhere along the line, we nicknamed her my avocado. <laughs> Everyone needs an avocado. But it's really important because as a kidney patient, you start to get very savvy about how your body feels. And post-transplant or on dialysis or pre-transplant, wherever you are, listen to your body and, and tell your doctors if something doesn't feel right. It's not the kind of health situation where you want to say, oh, I, I feel weird, but I'm going to keep it to myself. A big part of advocating is to really like stick up for yourself, get answers, and do a lot of your own education because there's so much education out there so that you're well-informed. You can take care of yourself. Well, the issue I think continues to be that the innovation is incredible, right? I follow the innovation. I follow what's happening. You know, somebody lived 37 days and somebody lived 52 days. And so, you know, just like your progression, the progression is getting longer and longer. I think the issue continues to be that we're adding 10 people to that waiting list almost every 10 minutes. And so because of that, we have to really find a way in our advocacy, in our education and awareness, to your point, really help people start to advocate for themselves, try to end the myths and misconceptions and the historical perspective about mistrust in the healthcare uh, arena. And I think that's really specifically true for people of color, uh, multicultural communities, um, different ethnicities, as they have a healthy mistrust, and rightfully so. So with this innovation, how do you think that we'll be able to really bring those folks who have health disparities, lack of health access, and lack of health equity into this new innovative turn that we're seeing? Oh my gosh, it's such a push. It's so disheartening to think about it, to think about like, for example, the EGFR rating that was biased against Black and African-American people, that's changed. And that's such a step in the right direction. But my my friend told me she thought that cost her three years. Now she's got a new, now she's getting a kidney, but she couldn't have gotten it on the other criteria. So identifying these things um, is so important. And I think that that we are having so many more conversations about it. So I think that the mistrust issue, we need all the voices to be out there talking about, you know, health equity and, and equal opportunity. It's a hard issue. And I, I wish I could just like, you know, have a magic wand and make it go away. But I think that just the dogged attempt to keep educating people is what we have to do. It's so systemic. It starts with even who is recommended for transplant. Um, some people aren't even told about transplant. Some people are on dialysis and don't know that transplant exists. 
So we need to all the people like you and me that work for for organizations, we need to get out and make sure people know the self-advocacy piece. You need to look into this for yourself. Don't wait for your doctor to tell you about transplant if you haven't heard about it. You need to pursue that. I love the the storytelling aspect. And I find that so few people, unless you're like us and in this world, know about living donation. And so, you know, we have the gap of almost 100,000 people waiting for a kidney. I'll just say 100 because it's an easier, you know, round number. I think in 2022, we had just over 25,000 transplants, which was like a record year. And if you think about that discrepancy between 25,000, which we celebrated, and 100,000, there's so many people not getting kidneys. So how do we solve that problem when we're not far ahead in the future, when we're right now? I think living donation education is really important because um, when I give talks, book talks, so many people ask me, you know, they ask me all the questions about my my mom and my husband and our marriage and living a happy life and being optimistic. But they also ask me so many questions about, I didn't know about living donation. I didn't know your husband was a living donor. Uh, what's the recovery? What's it like? Um, and when people hear stories about people doing it, they learn so much more and they get inquisitive. And people were saying, well, I wonder if I should be an organ donor. And I've had strangers reach out to me via email. Um, one man said, I thought I might donate my body to science, but I read your book and now I think I should become an organ donor. What do you think? And, you know, just it just makes me so happy that just providing a story can really provide education. So I think all of us, all of us of whatever background we have, we need to keep telling stories so that people know, you know, if if your husband donated a kidney to you and he's black, you can ask stories and see someone in your community that is able to do this. There's also, which I really like, there's a an living donor site of athletes. And there are all these really amazing athletes who have donated their kidneys. And I love that website because it shows these very healthy, active people who maintain a very healthy, active life, and they've donated a kidney. And people look at that and think, oh, I guess it doesn't take that much out of you. Many people don't even know you can live with one kidney. So we got to keep spreading the word, which is why I love your podcast, because that's what you do. And these stories are, are really, we need to just keep them, keep them coming. What would you say as a recipient of two deceased donor kidneys in terms of registration, the importance of registering, and also people understanding, you talked a little bit about living donation, but the correlation between the two and why it's so important in helping to solve and end the wait list, but also as a component of the innovation that's going to take place now and in the future? registered organ donation. You can do it on your driver's license. When you renew your license, you can do it online and it takes probably five minutes. The thing is about numbers is when you become a registered organ donor, which is a lovely, wonderful thing to do. 
there's certain criteria that has to happen for someone who is a registered organ donor to actually be able to donate their organs if a tragedy befalls them. So not everybody has a death that aligns with the ability to then use those organs. So numbers-wise, we need as many people as we can to be registered organ donors because of that kind of numbers game. But it's not nearly enough. That's why living donation is the other component that touches on that. But Back to registered organ donation. I have talked to classrooms, to high school classrooms when they're getting their driver's license about it. And what I like to tell people is you can't make a decision unless you're educated. Like nobody can make a good decision unless they have information. And there are a lot of myths about it. A lot of people think if they become a registered organ donor and it's on their license, that a paramedic won't save them if they're in an accident. It's absolutely false. There's just not an ounce of truth in that. So um, we like to bust myths about it. And for anyone to make a good decision, they need information. They also need to talk to their family. If they decide that they do or they don't, have a conversation with your family. I know it's not light dinner table conversation, but um, it's really important to just say, I signed up to be a registered organ donor. I want you guys to know. Because it's legally binding decision if you're over 18. But the fact of the matter is, if there is this tragedy that happens, it's a difficult time. And it's such a comfort to a family to know what someone's wishes were. So um, that's a really important thing. And another thing I think about it, I think people, like I said before, we have sort of this death-defying culture. They don't like to talk about it. They don't like to think about it. And I get that. I mean, who would want to think about that? But we make wills and we do a lot of things to prepare for, you know, the unforeseen. And I think that there's sort of like an icky factor that people have attached to it. Even the word organ, I think people think, oh, that's kind of icky to think about. But I like to phrase it more in terms of just kindness and paying something forward. I mean, if you were if you were at a picnic and you were going to leave and you had a lot of leftover food and you were either going to throw it away or there was a starving person who could really benefit from that food, would you give it to them or would you throw it in the trash can? I mean, if we can phrase it in ways that people can employ their kindness, I think it's easier for people to think about. And there's also a campaign, I think, in New York about recycle yourself. And I think people... It's easier for them to think about recycling than, you know, death and organ donation. So I think the ways that we present it can help people make their decisions sometimes. Oh, for sure. And one of the things that I like to do when I go out and, and visit churches and, and, and visit high school students as well is to ask if you had an opportunity to save someone's life, would you? And of course, hands go up, people don't hesitate to say yes. But the challenge becomes that they really don't understand what that means. And to your earlier point, less than 2% of people die in a manner that is even conducive to being an organ and tissue donor. And of that 2%, less than 15% actually go on to be organ donors. And so it's very important that people get the entire story and not just um, living on, you know, 60-year-old information, 
Right. And more importantly, I think, than just talking about death, is really having the conversation about health historical perspectives. What has happened in your family previously? Do you have all the medical history that will help you to understand why you might want to eat this way, why you might want to exercise this way, why you might want to have, and I think you said earlier, the lack of socioeconomic challenges that you had because you know, you were educated and you just didn't have those issues. But how do we help people, you know, understand even though you may have some socioeconomic challenges, even though you may have some high lifestyle challenges, I think your work with the National Kidney Foundation and prevention uh, really sort of, you know, changes that narrative. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I've loved the work that's been happening where the power of this randomine Bernadia, her story, when she goes out there and she says, I didn't know that eating the way I did was going to do what it did. I didn't know. I didn't know. I love salt. I love the fried food. I love it. But listen what's happened to me. I am in kidney failure. And now I've discovered that I love eating this. Her sharing that story with the whole kind of force of the NKF behind her is so powerful. And she she goes right to, to churches and organizations and, and people listen to her so much because she understands the challenge of uh, food that she's been grown up eating. Um, it was her family's food. It was what she had at the dinner table. But she's so good at showing what it cost her. And she's so good at showing that I can have this occasionally, but I'm preserving my health. So I think another thing that the NKF does, which is really, really helpful, is we do screenings for people in high-risk communities. And when they're screened, a large percentage of people have kind of precursors to kidney health issues. And then they're encouraged to follow up with the doctor and because that's that front end is so important. Um, there's a lot of work also with primary care physicians. And that's a, a really kind of like front end area where there was just a recent study um, through the NKF and people with diabetes should definitely be monitored for protein in the urine, for their EGFR, their kidney health markers. And there was just an extensive study done, and they found of people with diabetes in their medical charts, only 40% were being monitored for kidney health. So there's just such a jumble of things on the front end that, um, that we're working on to, to make this, you know, prevention work, diet work, exercise work, you know, all the things that we know we're supposed to do. We're supposed to eat well. We're supposed to exercise. We're supposed to get a good sleep. Well, we hear that all the time. But when you attach it to someone who has realized the damage that has happened to their health because they didn't do those things, I think that it's a powerful message. Great. So, Tell us a little bit about the book. Tell us the title and where we can find it. And, you know, 
what was it like writing the book? Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. So the book is called Incurable Optimist, Living with Illness and Chronic Hope. The title, I, you know, I have a publisher and we went back and forth on the title. I I give them credit. She said to me when she really wanted this title, she said, it's what you are. You're an incurable optimist. It's such what you embody in this book. And optimism is a really important thing. I think any of us who live with health challenges or scrap health challenges, any of us who live with uncertainty, and that's everybody, like there's no life that comes with guarantees. We all kind of muddle through uncertainty. And um, we have to figure out how we're going to do it. You know, how can we take the circumstances that we have and make our lives good? Obviously, we can't deny the hardships. There's a lot of hard times, and I've been through a lot of hard times. But I just really think hope is an engine to keep us going, and that makes me optimistic, even though I have an incurable autoimmune kidney disease. So writing it was empowering. Um, one reason I wanted to write it is because, like I said, I think my daughter is a miracle. And I just thought one day, what if I get hit by a bus? And she never knows all the things. So I really wanted it on paper. And then I also just wanted to share a story that 37 million Americans or you know, a lot of other people who deal with uncertainty could could identify with. And that's been the most amazing thing that I've found since it's been published is I feel like, like, you know, when you go to a cocktail party, you don't have these kind of conversations. Um, it's like pulling back the curtain and people are telling me very, very deep and emotional things about their own lives, but we're all just human. So we're all just sharing stories of what it's like to, you know, muddle through being a human and we all have beauty and bummers and we have to figure out a way to go forward with it. So because I have been so blessed by people helping me, I I think it's a family love story. And um, it was hard to write the hard parts, but I didn't get stuck in it because overall it's such a, I feel like it's such a positive book about how to, you know, make the most of the hand you've been dealt. So um, it's been an amazing experience. It's been really fun being out in the world talking about it. And and giving other people permission to talk about their experiences as well. And so where can we get the book? The book is available on Amazon. It's available in print, ebook, and audiobook form. And then it's also available at any bookstore. You can ask them if they don't have it in stock, they can order it. And also I have a website, which is Jennifer Kramer with a C, Miller.com. And there are some links on the website to buy the book as well. Well, Jennifer Kramer Miller, it has been an absolute delight. Uh, You are an incurable optimist, and I have just had a great time talking to you today. And I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your story and also being another face of donation that we don't always see. But you know, the fact that you've had four transplants, you're still smiling, you're still an optimist. Um, I am so grateful that you reached out to me uh, and you heard our pack. I'm sorry. I'm so grateful that you reached out to us and you heard the podcast and you wanted to be involved. So thank you. Yes. And thank you, Marion, so much for your podcast and what you do. You help so many people by sharing these stories. So I really appreciate your work. 
Yes, definitely. Well, thank you for listening to Let's Talk Hope, a podcast devoted to sharing organ and tissue donation stories and turning tragedies into triumphs. If you like what you've heard, please listen and subscribe to Let's Talk Hope wherever you get your podcasts. We encourage you to start the conversation today about organ and tissue donation with your loved one and make your wishes known. You can register to become a donor at Gift of Hope org. Let's Talk Hope was produced by Ribbit360. Thanks to Vice President of Marketing and Sales, Terry Lydon, podcast producer, Jennifer O'Neill, and gratitude to the Gift of Hope team, including Community Outreach Coordinator, Kleana Henderson, Marketing Communication Specialist, Emily Frederick, and Staff Assistant, Margaret Siami. Ribbit360 also produces Gift of Hope Spanish language podcast, Hablemos de la Esperanza, hosted by Luis Ortega. And if you'd like to hear more great podcasts, please visit rivet360.com.